Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. We are broadcasting live from the Heritage Radio Network studios in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we're going to be talking with Patty Lavera, who is the Assistant Director of Food and Water Watch. She coordinates the food team. Patty has a bachelor's degree in environmental science from Lehigh University and a master's degree in environmental policy from the University of Michigan. Before joining Food and Water Watch, Patty was the Deputy Director of the Energy and Environment program at Public Citizen and a researcher at the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice. And doesn't that sound just like a dating game intro? (laughs) Are you old enough to remember the dating game? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm going to have to work on that. (laughs) So, Patty, um, my interest was caught by an issue that uh, actually came up in all of the meat uh, trade papers that I read on a regular basis. And then su- subsequently, we at Heritage got a press release from Food and Water Watch about this very issue. And I'm going to give a little background. We're going to be talking about CAFOs and pollution. Um, and uh, this little background bit here explains kind of where this came from. In 1972, the clear water pollution threat posed by CAFOs, and that's confined area feeding operations, uh, otherwise known as feedlots, um, staggering waste stream led Congress to mandate that the EPA must regulate CAFOs pursuant to the Clean Water Water Act. And despite this 40-year-old mandate, the EPA continues to lack basic data about factory farms, including accurate and consistent information on their size, location, and waste management practices. Okay, that's strumifying enough. But tell us about the motion that you, uh, along with HSUS and a number of other environmental and community groups, have filed recently to intervene in the case uh, that was filed by uh, the meat certain parts of the meat industry against the EPA to shut down gathering this very basic information about CAFOs. Sure. It's a little bit so complicated. We've had a so, couple things happen yeah. in the last couple of weeks. So this has been going on since the 70s, like you just said. Right. So the EPA has never really figured out a way or had the political will to figure out a way to regulate the water pollution that comes off these very large livestock operations. So we're not talking about, you know, a small family farm with 50 cows. We're talking mm-hmm. about lots of animals in one place. Um, Thousands you know, factory of heads, farms that have right. lots of animals in one place, and therefore they have lots of manure in one place. Yes. And there is a water quality problem that comes from that. So all of these, there's been lots of legal efforts and different attempts to try to get these things permitted under the Clean Water Act. And we're not there yet. The system is not working. We don't have a functional system for permitting these things. But last year, the EPA was supposed to do a a rule. They were supposed to write a rule, and it's called the 308 rule because that's the section of the law. And it was just supposed to let them go out and gather information about how many facilities are there, how many animals are there, where are they, basic information, which is the first step before they're ever going to track them or regulate them or figure out what's going on. And under a lot of pressure from the industry, the EPA abandoned the rule. They just stopped doing it. Well, they claim that the reason that we don't need the rule is that this information is already on record in uh, states and through other uh, mechanisms. Right. right. That was... Excuse me. Um, that was their excuse. <clears throat> and um, what? So we, you know, a bunch of groups were unhappy about that, 
And one step that people took was they used the Freedom of Information Act, mm-hmm. and they so said, tell us what you have. If your records are so great and you have such a handle on in this industry, show us what you have. Mm-hmm. And when we got those records, um, EPA asked for them back which is kind of extraordinary. That doesn't happen. The, the government answers a FOIA request, put, you know, gives the public records, and then asks for them back because they were under, again, terrible pressure from the industry. Uh-huh. Um, and then so they, some folks gave the records back. Um, EPA supposedly blacked out a bunch of information that was you know, too sensitive to give out. Mm-hmm gave it back, and then asked for it back again. And so it just shows the, the terrible pressure that they were under and that they weren't willing to stand up to this industry. So to make matters worse, the American Farm Bureau and the National Pork Producers Council, which represents the largest players in the pork industry, right. they then sued the EPA and said, you can never give information out about this industry again. We're going to try to stop you with this lawsuit from ever answering a FOIA about where factory farms are again. And so just this week, um, several groups, Food and Water Watch, um, Environmental Integrity Project, and Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement filed a lawsuit to say to try to intervene in that in that case, so mm-hmm. that it's not just EPA negotiating with Farm Bureau, that somebody else is at the table. So we have to find out if we're allowed to do that. Wow. So what, you know, let's, let's go back for a second and tell me exactly what kind of data uh, did the EPA release or would release related to industrialized animal agriculture that has them so scared? Is it the numbers? Is it the, you know, the literal numbers of animals on farm? Is it uh, the, the names and addresses of those uh, operators? What, and when you say it's not, it's not uh, mom and pop uh, ranchers or smaller farms, which are often the feeders to feedlots, as we all know, it's like you, you have a grower who's going to grow them out from, say, you know, cow, calf or, or, you know, just get them up to a certain weight and then they go to a feedlot, right? So it's mm-hmm. not the smaller guys that you're talking about. It's where these animals are aggregated in large quantities prior to slaughter for their last sort of like whatever it is, two or three months of feeding up. I don't know how it works so much in the pork industry, but that's how it works with cattle. Um, so what what's, what exactly is it that's got them so wound up about this that you're going to find out that they don't want you to know? Well, there's what they're saying, which is which is along those lines that you know, we can't disclose this information because this might be people's um, homes because mm-hmm. you know they, some people do live, uh, especially with chicken. Uh, operations. Right. It tends to be, um, you know, somebody's family farm, and then they get into the chicken business and they grow chickens on contract to a right. Purdue or to Tyson. Um, you know, same thing with some pork operations, but not all. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're saying there's a lot of uh, rhetoric from those guys about this is a privacy issue and it's too much. You know, it's too much intrusion by the government. When, and but really, what it boils down to is that they don't want to be regulated. And if they can stop, you know, even this basic information collection, right. then we're never going to get to the point of having. EPA require permits and, you know, having a rational system for dealing with these facilities under the Clean Water Act. And so we actually kept the records that we got from the FOIA. And we looked through them, (laughs) and it's a mess. It actually shows that EPA doesn't have a handle at all on what Uh is going on with these facilities. And they said, oh, we don't need to collect our own information. We'll get it from the states. We'll get it from other places. And we we had to write a six-page document explaining that we couldn't figure out what they know because every state is doing it differently. Mm -hmm. Different states report into different databases at EPA. So no one has a handle on this industry. So for them to claim they don't need to do this information collection is bogus. 
Absolutely. Um, I think it's bogus. And if they have nothing to worry about, then why is this such an issue? This is like this. It goes back over and over again to the issue of transparency within the livestock agriculture sector, you know, where it's like they've dragged their feet on every single thing, whether it's antibiotics or uh, beta agonists or waste waste disposal, you know, whatever it is, they're going to draw a curtain over it as best they can, um, which is so unfortunate for them because talk about sending the wrong message to consumers. Um, But what um, I want to go back to the fact that that I think thought that all uh, large feeding operations had to get some sort of permitting in terms of, of especially wastewater and manure management. So you're saying to me that in states such as Iowa, and I thought it was really interesting that it was the Iowa citizens were part of this, of your motion, um, that they don't, they literally don't have to, to develop any kind of uh, treatment plant that is, is, uh, mandated by the state or, or permitted by the state or examined by state engineers, nothing like that happens. It's just like if you feel like going into business, you just do it. Is that what we're Depends talking where about? you are. And it's, it's, I mean, the mess is too kind of a word to describe the status right. of the system. <laughs> so in places like Iowa, they have a huge, just a huge presence of factory farms. They have egg producers. They have mm-hmm. a ton of hog producers. Yes. There's even some feedlots. And they, their state does make them get some permits. But it's not, you know, but the, the folks, the group that were involved with Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement, they have their own list of accidents and spills and, you know, waste mm-hmm. um, overflows from lagoons. And so... They've kind of got a permitting system there, but they don't have enough enforcement, right? So they they are fighting every year in the legislature to get the bodies in the state agencies to go out and look at these things and see if they're running safely. In other states, they don't get permits. Um, and where we are with the federal, you know, the federal rules, which are supposed to be the foundation for this whole thing, is we have you know 25 years worth of lawsuits trying to figure out how to force EPA to do this in a uniform way. And what it boils down to at this point is the last round of revisions to those federal rules mm-hmm. said that the facilities can say, well, we don't have any intention to discharge into a body of water. So if you don't have an intention to discharge, you don't have to get a permit. So oh, it wow. doesn't so take you a can scientist just, to say, okay. I'm going to say I don't have an intention to discharge. Right, because you're going to say, well, I, I'm building this pit. I'm building a lagoon. And if, even though it's you know only maybe... 300 yards away from a local stream, I have no intent, intention right. of discharging into the stream. Of course, it may happen, but it won't be my intention. And thus, right. they are not liable, and thus, they don't have to get a permit. This is astonishing. I have to say that in all the five years I've been doing this, this is a part of the puzzle I didn't really understand. I had no idea that it was so loosey-goosey when it came to you know, enforcing any kind of environmental protection for local waterways. Oh, my gosh. I can see why Food and Water Watch is so involved in this. Um, <laughs> and that's what's so outrageous, that they won't even get this basic data about where they are. Right. Right. We're or how many there are. having a rational, you know, permitting scheme. We're talking about getting the information about how many facilities there are. Right. And these facilities, and again, to go back, like to, to just, I just want to hammer home this thing about the privacy thing, because later in the second segment of the program, which we're going to come up to in just a few minutes, um, I'm going to quote you some of the, um, some of the rebuttals from Drover's Cattle Network meeting place and so on, um, you know, that says, well, this is really all about the privacy of these farmers. It has nothing to do with what we're planning on doing. And indeed some, you know, to be fair, Cargill, for example, where I went on a tour a few years ago, they had an incredibly impressive wastewater management program in place. And I think with some of the larger players, that was for a cattle feedlot or for a slaughterhouse, actually, for a slaughtering plant. And of course, needless to say, they generate immense quantities of waste, um, waste water in the cleaning and and butchering of of cattle. Um, 
And uh, their wastewater management was extraordinarily successful and extraordinarily expensive. And they seem very committed to making that work for that particular processing plant. So what we're talking about, I guess what I wanted to clarify in my own mind, is that we're talking about feedlots, concentrated feeding operations. We're not talking about slaughterhouses, which may have to go through a completely different permitting process. Am I right about that? Exactly, and they do. So that's yeah. that. the law is much better interpreted that that's one building with a pipe going out with wastewater, and so it's very clear that they have to have clean water right. permits and treatment and all of those things. There's always been this problem getting that same coverage for agriculture. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we're you know decades into this law, the Clean Water Act, which came around in the 70s, and they've right. never quite been able or willing, which is probably the bigger problem, right. uh, to, to apply it in this way when it's a waste lagoon or you're disposing of the waste supposedly as fertilizer, but it's so much in one place. This is way past the point of using it as fertilizer, and it's really waste disposal on land. Yes, it is. I mean, I think uh, a case in point, a lot of the listeners may be aware of like the recent, actually the recent sort of defeat in court in Maryland about, I think it was the dairy farms, right? And they they brought us, you guys were involved in an action there where uh, dairy farms were polluting the Chesapeake, and in the end, chicken farms, actually, oh, sorry, yeah. it was chicken farms. Okay, um, but ultimately, it was never really. Uh, somehow, the chicken people won, and I, I, I still haven't figured out how that was. <laughs> That worked well, out. That became a case because we don't have good enough rules. And so um, it was a case about one particular facility to see if sampling that a local environmental group had done could link what was happening you know, on that particular facility to damage that was done to a particular creek. Uh-huh. Um, and so sometimes in court, you know, it, it, it works out and sometimes it, it doesn't. And right. so one of the interesting things about that case, though, was that the way that the chicken industry is set up, you know, so in this case it was a Purdue uh, contract grower. Right. So they're not really farmers. They're growing birds on contract to Purdue, who owns them the whole time. Mm-hmm. So the farmer takes out a debt, uh, takes out a mortgage to build the barns. They own any chickens that die. They own the waste, which when you have that much in one spot is no right. longer a fertilizer. It's really a liability you have to yeah. dispose of. Purdue owns the birds, and they bring the feed, and they make all the decisions. And so one of the issues involved in that case was trying to get at that relationship between who makes the decisions. Is it Purdue, or is it that farmer that they're happy to use as the front for the whole thing. Right, and so I think there'll be more conversation about that in places like Maryland where there's a huge poultry industry. Yes, absolutely. Not to, And there's lots of dairy around there as well. Um, well, let's, let's uh, Dedrick, let's take a really short break uh, for a sponsor drop. And Patty, stay on the line. We'll be right back with Patty Levera, who is the Deputy Director of Food and Water Watch. We're talking about naughty EPA rules and lack of oversight in uh, confined area feeding operations and agriculture. Stay tuned. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain, above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world, highly processed fruit and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com.
Welcome back to What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And on the line with me today is Patty Lavera from the Food and Water Watch. She's the deputy director there, and she's talking to us about um, some challenges that have been raised to the EPA, uh, which has... Uh, basically caved in on trying to record how many confined area feeding operations exist in our country and what kinds of permitting processes they go through in order to manage their waste disposal. So, um, Patty, I'm going to jump now to the uh, response from the industry, because as you know, I'm an avid reader of all of the trades and and actually something of a darling, as a matter of fact, um, (laughs) in the uh, meat industry, believe it or not. Even though I rake these guys over the coals all the time, it's like I don't know why they keep coming back for more. They just invited me to speak at yet another conference. I'm like, okay. (laughs) I'm so glad you enjoy being insulted. Um, (laughs) But anyway, according to the National Pork Producers Council, at issue, as we discussed before, is the disclosure of contact information, farm location, permitting status, type and number of animals and number of acres. Now, I don't understand how this kind of personal information about the operators um, really is uh, sort of the issue at all. I mean, like getting their names and addresses, how is that going to help you in con- helping to control pollution and helping to enforce uh, some kind of regulations. Because to be honest with you, it seems it sounds to me like it's just yet again a situation where it's, it's wildly underfunded um, by the federal government that any kind of monitoring or regulation enforcement is basically non-existent simply because the resources haven't been allocated to it. Don't, do you agree with that or do you think it goes... Um, I think their biggest missing resource is backbone on this issue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's always going to be resource issues for right. enforcement, but right, this right. is an agency that is afraid to stand up to the meat industry. And it just happens time and time again over the last really 25 years that they've had an opportunity to create a system, and then they back down. So they really just walked away from this opportunity to make this rule that would have just figured out a system to figure out where these things are, how many are there, how many acres of land are we talking about that regularly have, you know, manure applied to them as as a waste disposal. I mean, that's... Before you know how to regulate it, you have to know what you're dealing with, right? right? And so if they don't have this information, then it gives them an excuse not to not to regulate. So, yes, there will be enforcement issues and how do you figure it out. And, and, yes, we live in a time of tight budgets, but that's not their problem on this one. Hmm. Well, I think just determining when uh, it stops being uh, fertilizer and becomes waste disposal, uh, has that even been addressed, like in terms of like literally calculating the number of cubic feet per, you know, whatever? Of waste that goes on. To, I mean, it, when does it, it become? It has when does it become an ways. issue? It depends who's doing the calculating, of mm-hmm. course. Um, you know, one of the things that that does exist on the books, if one of these facilities does choose to say we're going to get a permit, or maybe their state makes them. It does. There is some variation state to state, and they have to have a plan. It's called a nutrient management plan, which is uh-huh. how are you going to dispose of all of this animal waste? And you know, we've taken a look at them in some places, and they're. This is way beyond anything that you would call agronomic, right? Using it sure. as fertilizer, it becomes about disposal. So I'm here in Washington D.C. So the Chesapeake Bay is very close by. It's you know it's a big regional um, you know characteristic for us. Everything's about the bay, and it's also sure. you know a notable ecosystem. And it's in trouble, and it's been in trouble for a long oh, time. Yeah. We have so many chickens on one piece of land, the eastern shore. And so now the plan is to truck that chicken waste out and just get it anywhere that's not the Chesapeake Bay watershed. So that could be a plan, but it seems like there's a better way you know, to deal with that with a better system. So, um, 
you know, this is all, it's just, it's just kind of a stark realization of how far behind we are in grappling with this industry, which has dramatically changed how we raise animals. Yeah, it sure has. Um, I'm going to read you a very fun quote from the uh, National Pork Producers Council spokesman, Dave Warner. Um, I'm sure you saw this too. Uh, this was in Meeting Place. He says, this is a frivolous lawsuit without merit. <laughs> the EPA data collection rule that is the subject of the lawsuit was part of a backroom, I love this language, a backroom sweetheart deal between EPA and Act activist environmental groups and the agency's attempted end run around the limits on its authority under the Clean Water Act. EPA rightly withdrew this proposed rule. H- how do you respond to that kind of language? I mean, sweetheart oh, backroom so deal? Uh, Are so we kidding? The, the sweetheart deal is pretty hilarious <laughs> because that's a term, that's the exact phrase that our side of the fence right, used exactly. for many years to describe a deal that was made between the meat industry and the Bush administration to not regulate air emissions, which is a whole other right. can of worms we're not talking about today. What happened? Well, we'll do that later. Quality. <laughs> And they came up with a study uh, under the Bush administration that meant that nobody was basically ever going to have to report air emissions until they did this incredibly long study. And everybody started to call it a sweetheart deal. So they're yeah. throwing that phrase back in our face with Very that particular nice. quote. Yeah, I loved it. Um, I thought that was great. And what are the limits of the EPA with regards to the Clean Water Act? I mean, why are there li- what, what kind of limits is he talking about? How does the EPA have limits on whether or not they regulate the Clean Water Act? So this, I mean, this has been 30, I forget, I think it started in the 80s. So this has been 25 or 30 years of lawsuits about how to make the Clean Water Act apply to agriculture. You know, it's very clear how it applies to a sewage treatment plant or a mm-hmm. factory that makes something, and they have one pipe that comes out, and that's very clear. And there's been just constant legal wrangling over how it applies to anything else. And so... Um, This is really, you know, it's kind of an ideological war about how the Clean Water Act applies to any kind of land use or agriculture in particular. And that's one of the favorite points of of the industry side of things is that this is not the EPA's business. And we think that it is. Um, You know, this is an impact. We know that these facilities discharge, and it's it's way, way, way overdue that EPA figure out how to do that. Yeah, it's amazing to me that that the EPA is so completely lacking in backbone. I mean, we've seen it over and over again. I mean, just the emissions thing that you mentioned about the sweetheart deal with uh, with the Bush administration over air emissions. Um, you know, it is disappointing when the Environmental Protection Agency turns out to be protecting somebody else's environment rather than yours and mine, if you know what I mean. It's like right. they're protecting the banking environment. They're protecting the Wall Street environment, but they are protecting our environment. Um, the other quote that really struck me during uh, when I was doing uh, you know my uh, research for the show uh, was that uh, st- even the state regulatory agencies questioned the need for federal law as they already collect the information in question, which you mentioned is completely uh, discombobulated. There's no uh, no rigor to it. There's no um, consistency to how the data is proposed. And so the EPA withdrew the proposed rule. And in the withdrawal document, the EPA, where appropriate, will collect CAFO information using existing sources of information, including state national pollution discharge eliminated elimination system programs, other regulations, and other programs at federal, state, and local level. So I guess what you're saying uh, is that this National Pollution Discharge Elimination System program doesn't really, is not really a national program. It's really a state-to-state program, and it's not coordinated. Is that right? Is that what we're saying here? You know, a bunch, the information that we got from that FOIA request, and it was kind of in the shambles, and it was not easy to go through, which speaks to the state of their their yeah. information um, at EPA. But one thing that we did see is that different 
states are complying with different eras of the law. So some were complying with the 2008 version uh-huh. of how EPA said they were going to deal with CAFOs. Some were doing 2002. Some it wasn't clear what they were doing. So we definitely have a patchwork. And that's not about flexibility. That's just about, you know, in, in places where the industry is very powerful, the states are less likely to do a good job. Mm-hmm. And then you know, when EPA, to go back to this information collection piece, when EPA bailed out and, and said, we're not going right. to finish this thing we said we're going to do, they said explicitly, the states have this and we can get it from them. Well, when we looked through these documents, there's a quote from the state of South Dakota saying, yeah, we may not give it to you, EPA. Like, you may, you may, we may not turn this over. Wow. So, yeah, that's, that is just broken. I mean, this is not acceptable. Um, in other sectors of the economy with other polluting industries, there's some basic information that's available, and that's how it's supposed to work. This is We have an entitlement to this kind of information and a transparent system, and it's just not okay for certain states to opt out and say, right. we don't have to give it to you. You know, you, The public doesn't have a right to know this. We have a right to know this for chemical plants. We have something called the toxic release inventory. Like For mm-hmm. lots of other sectors, we can figure out you know, what the contribution to the environment is, and and it, it's not appropriate that this industry just gets carved out. Well, one of the points that you make in your press release is that it's not just a question of, of simply manure and ex- excessive manure. It's it's all of the inputs that go into that, including the uh, chemical waste that is discharged by the animal through, uh, you know, of, of the various growth promotants that it's fed, through the various uh, antibiotics that it's fed. Um, and all of these things kind of come together. I mean, they really, the industry has such a big job ahead of it in terms of revamping how they do business overall. And I, I have to say, I read the most fantastic editorial um, the other day in uh, Drovers by Dan Flynn, who's their editor, about how, you know, the industry really must just suck it up and deal with this antibiotic thing. Like, they can't keep blaming it on consumers and doctors, you know what I mean? Which was really encouraging to me. And I I feel like there's been enough outcry about that piece of it, that there's starting to be movement in the industry. And and I think if there's more people signing on to to what you're doing in terms of how uh, waterways are being polluted, that there's going to be movement towards that too. But one of the reasons that, um, one of the things that I'm always remarking on about the cattle or about the the livestock industry in general is the level of paranoia uh, that they express towards groups like yours um, and towards (laughs) Humane Society of the United States and so on. I mean, it's re- it's quite remarkable, and I'm sure you're well aware of it. Um, and it's so their fear of the loss of privacy and so and so so, so forth uh, is is correlates with their fear of of literally of being vandalized, of having livestock damaged, of having infrastructural damages. Um, and those episodes do occur. They may not be all that frequent, but they do occur, and they are legitimately, um, you know to be feared, I think, if I were an operator on any level. So how do you, how do your groups like yours kind of deal with, with the sort of overzealous activists who do, uh, who do in fact, uh, you know, attack people's property and animals? What, what, what do you have to say? I mean, how can your sort of groups kind of regulate that sort of outside of the box uh, activity? Well, we obviously don't condone that, you know, and, and don't not. really have relationships with folks who do that. Right. Um, but I think, you know, and it's, and it's never appropriate for that to be what people choose to do to, to protest something. But um, we do think that this is getting a little overblown. It's not mm-hmm. as common as it, it seems to be portrayed in some of this, you know, trade industry. Um, and I don't, I don't think that shutting down information is an appropriate response. To that. So, you know, we're aware of that. We're aware that there is that concern in that community, and that was supposedly driving, you know, what we saw all the, you know, all through state legislatures in the sure. last year about these ag gag bills Absolutely. that you can't take yep. a picture. 
you know, and this is just, it, it's overreaction. If it's justified, I'm not entirely convinced it's justified for the number of things that have actually happened. But if it is justified, it's, it's over. It's just an overreaction, uh, and it's swinging too far. It's not an acceptable way to run, you know, an industry in a democratic society that's based on some openness. And that's, it, it just isn't okay. It's not no, acceptable. It's not. Well, I think the industry has suffered a tremendous backlash uh, after sponsoring all those ad gag bills, and I mean, even within the trade groups themselves, they're they're starting to question the the wisdom of uh, <laughs> putting somebody in jail for taking a picture, you know, or sending a right. drone over. I mean, it's you know, it's been a little crazy. And I think you know, these I, I'm constantly amazed at the failure to. Um, sort of uh, negotiate with the public. And, and, the, and that's going to take me to my last question with you right now, which is just sort of a um, maybe even almost disingenuous or ingenuous. But um, do you feel like there's ever an opportunity to engage directly with these trade groups or with uh, industry heads to talk about these issues? I mean, it seems to me like it's always so polarized between the activists on the one side and the industry on the other side, and they never get to talk to each other. Or they never seem to want to. Um, and I feel like that there's a lot of, um, I think that, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, hostility. There's so much hostility that it has really sort of broken down the whole business of trying to come to some kind of compromise or, or move the train forward a little bit. What, how do you respond to that? I mean, do you guys ever get a chance to, you know, sit down or go to the agricultural conferences and listen to what their concerns are and then express yours? Because that doesn't, I don't see that happening. No, it isn't. And I think we're in a particularly polarized time. I think that's true. But what's fascinating for us is the difference between the heads of these trade associations and the biggest members who are always the meat companies. And then when you talk to individual members, you know, individual ranchers or right. farmers, um, or even contract poultry growers, who we talk to quite a few of them, and we I'm have sure. a lot in common. The breakdown is the trade associations that claim to represent them. Right. Uh, and that goes as far as American Farm Bureau, who doesn't really speak for a bunch of farmers, um, but they're happy to speak for kind of corporate agribusiness when yeah. it comes, you know, when they're making decisions on policy. So we talk to an enormous number, and we go to lots of conferences of, you know, farm groups and rancher groups, rural community groups who don't like what these trade associations are saying, and they're they're trying to call them out as well. So, you know, different groups have different approaches to the, to you know, dialogues with industry. We don't do a lot of them because they haven't served us very well. So, um, very interesting. If it's, you know, if it seems genuine, we would maybe have the conversation, but most of the time it doesn't. We're happy to talk to and often talk to actual farmers and actual folks on the ground doing it. And right. we have a ton in common and do a, a lot of coalition work with them on farm policy, things like country origin labeling or contracts that these meat companies write with these farmers. Yeah. We agree with the farmers and what the contract should say. They could be a hell of a lot fairer. The block sure. comes from the American Meat Institute and the Farm Bureau and right. you know, these big And the NCBA companies. and, yeah. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. NPPC, all of these big trade organizations. I know they're, it's a, it's a real, it's like they're almost an industry of their own, separate from the actual industry that they claim to represent. I'm always struck by that. Um, anyway, Patty, I've got to say uh, goodbye to you, but I want you to let listeners know where they can find more information about this on your website and what other kinds of links uh, you might recommend for people to read about this and um, anything else you want to talk about. Sure. In the next um, so we have seconds. everything. You know, we have press releases about these lawsuits, and you know, new developments will be on the press section of our website, which is foodandwaterwatch.org. And then we also have um, an additional website called factoryfarmmap.org, mm. where we just took USDA's data, because there's no EPA data to get, but we took USDA's cool. data and made a map just broadly about what counties 
across the country have a huge number of animals being raised this way. And it is kind of like to put it in that visual is really kind of shocking, and people um, are using that a lot to kind of get an idea of how we've changed where and how we raise animals. Fascinating. I really appreciate you talking to me today. I hope you'll come back again soon. I'd love to talk about country of origin labeling with you. There's lots of cool stuff going on. Not cool, but sort of scary stuff going on with that. <laughs> lots of stuff, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but lots of stuff. Anyway, um, thanks so much again to you, Patty Lavera, uh, Deputy Director of Food and Water Watch. And next week, my friends, we will be talking with Jane Black, uh, who is um, just wrote a story for the Food and Environmental Reporting Network uh, in partnership with another publication, which eludes me right now, about SNAP benefits and what the cuts to SNAP may mean uh, to American families in the future should they all go come to fruition. And um, thanks again to my sponsor, Kane Winery, and we'll see you next week for another episode of What Doesn't Kill You. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.